This is Deep Dives, and I'm your host, Matt Samuels. We are joined yet again by the executive producer of Deep Dives, Miles Gross. Miles, how are you today? Matthew Samuels. Oh, my God, what a pleasure to be back on. How are you doing? I'm doing all right. Well, besides besides what I keep hearing about our intern and just how, <laughs> dis- how destructive he is, uh, I'm doing okay, but you keep giving me these reports that are like, Oh my! They're like ruining my day every time I hear about this guy and and just the 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 nonsense that's going on. It's not great, but we're gonna have an episode to wrap up season one, and uh, Ernton has officially agreed to be on it. And I think that um, it's gonna be great. It's gonna be good for us uh, emotionally and spiritually, and it's good for our audience to really hear what's going on behind the scenes. And it's, you know, big wrap up for season one and exciting stuff for season two. So I think it's gonna be a great episode. We're gonna air our dirty laundry live on on the on on the podcast. How about that? Oh yeah, I don't. Maybe we should sign like an NDA or something. I don't know. Something. So I mean, it almost. Been, I don't know. I feel like this is gonna be like a therapy session in a way. I mean, I I think both of us. There's a lot of things we've wanted to say to him, you know, over the course of the season that that you know I think a lot's gonna gonna you know, come out. Uh, mm. And it's going to be good. We're going to do it in person, which mm-hmm. is exciting. I don't know the last time we've had all three of us together in a room. It could be I dangerous. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know. And are you still talking about doing the live studio audience? Is that is that happening? It's been mentioned. I have to get the intern to agree to it, but we could get a crowd. It could be better if there's a crowd there. It could, be, it could make it a safer environment for all three. <laughs> this could turn into like a Jerry Springer. <laughs> yeah, definitely. A little... Uh, do you have like a bouncer or a security personnel? We would have to, of course, hire somebody, right? Yeah. Like an off-duty uh, uh, police officer, something like that. Some, something like that, yeah. Maybe our guest today. You know what? He would actually, if, if, you, need, if you need some muscle, someone who you don't want to mess with, uh, Alex Pletas is, is certainly the guy. That's a good, that's a good point, Miles. Yeah, good definitely. One. We should ask him. We should. Alex um, is an amazing guy uh, who who I've known well for a really long time. He is a veteran. He fought in both Iraq and and Afghanistan. So a true, um, you know, what else can you say? A true, uh, a a hero. Um, someone that you know I admire greatly. The the ultimate sacrifice. You know, putting himself, um, volunteering for for um you know for those um uh for those uh tours of, of duty in both Iraq and Afghanistan and just incredible um he he was awarded the bronze star uh medal of you know for his time in Iraq and kind of going beyond his time um serving he's done the list is too long for me to recite right now uh, Alex and I discuss as much of it as we can get to but he's been in the private sector he's uh just so successful doing every you know anything that he touches to um you know touches in his life seems to um blossom so he's been in the private sector and now he's doing some um getting into politics uh, local politics um in in Connecticut and 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 of course um you know having a lot of success in that so Alex is an awesome guy an awesome guest someone that um you know I would have a lot of respect for and so thrilled and honored that you know that he took the time to come on the show miles you um you got to listen in a little bit as as you as you typically do as the executive producer mm-hmm. pretty pretty uh incredible guy right i mean super uh super can you say? selfless um really great guy uh, we just had veterans day which is awesome being able to celebrate all the veterans out there and 
everyone's that's you know put their lives on the line uh, to protect the country and it's just uh it's just tremendous um i don't think we you know get to really appreciate um every year what's what's going on outside mm-hmm. the country and within the country and i think that uh it's it's always great to hear a story of someone that's witnessing it firsthand being mm-hmm. able to tell us um what's going on out there and it's it's an unbelievable story it really is he's a really great guy really brave the best you know they're just um the best I, i've i've uh someone that um is is the cream of the crop as 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 good of a heart as good as as they come um and so thrilled um and and an engaging speaker too you know you'll 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 notice that when you you know when you listen to the interview someone that um you you know you captivating and we'll see i i ask him in the interview at the end you know what's what's next i could totally see him you know he's getting involved in the local um you know local government um but i could see him you know with his background with his you know he's brilliant um you know has the infrastructure in place i don't know if he wants it but if he wanted to be you know in 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 politics on a on a more national stage uh i could totally see it that's a decision he's going to have to make but if there was you know a senator you know governor pletas out there you know in the next uh next few years it would not it would certainly not surprise me so definitely uh, exciting time for him for sure absolutely so we'll we'll get to that in a second miles um thanks again for taking the time i know you got to run because you have something else to do oh yeah got to got to be busy guys got we got a we got a great oh my god we we booked a great guest uh for our season finale before mm. our our last episode with our intern super excited uh super shocked that we got this one in we thought we'd finish with 30 but uh there's gonna be another one and um oh my god i don't know if i should tease this out or have the intern tease on social media or not it's it's, it's a big one we're I very excited you should do something this is a big this is this is as they say in the in the biz a get they call this a, a get, get. <laughs> and my no, it definitely you, is I've uh, told a couple of friends about it and uh, yeah. kept it in small circles so far. And uh, I don't know, hopefully the buzz doesn't get out too soon. But yeah, really excited to get that one going. And this was, as they as they say, a cold call. Is that true, Miles? A cold call here? This was it was a cold call. You know, you I really thought, cold. I didn't think that they would agree to come on, but I thought I'd take a shot and uh, super excited to be able to come on our podcast. And um, I mean, I'm super appreciative that that they're willing to do so. I mean, what an honor. This is a big one. It must be that soothing voice on the call. Must... <laughs> Def- oh, definitely. I have that podcast voice, Matt. Come on. Right. It's a good you thing. Do that... a couple more interviews. It's a good thing they don't see your face, because that that would that would probably be a, a deal killer there. But yeah, that would be rough. No, especially. Definitely, <laughs> definitely would be. Well, I'm looking forward to that. They're all great episodes, but we're we're certainly going to finish. Um, we're finishing, you know, with Alex today couple more on tap uh we are finishing strong we are finishing very very strong and then we'll we'll do our recap with the intern which will be must listen to radio must like that a christmas to. special how about that or maybe like a thanksgiving special get it eh, i don't know we'll say let's do a christmas yeah christmas special have the fireplace set get the u-log on it'll be nice how good what's better than that a little podcast by the uh by the tree by the, by the tree how about that all the awesome. all the all the Jews can sit around the Hanukkah bush and uh, <laughs> and listen to the podcast. There okay. you go. All right, Miles, uh, you go do what you have to do. I appreciate it, and thank you as always. We will be right back with Alex Plitas. 
on Deep Dives with our guest this week, Alex Pletos. Hey, Alex, how are you? Good, Matt. How are you? Thanks for having me. It is my pleasure. Thanks for making the time. You're you're one of the busiest people I know. So, um, you know, to get you for 45 minutes here is, uh, I feel like I, it was an accomplishment. So thanks, uh, thanks again for coming on. Times have changed, but uh, saving the world one email at a time, right? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> that is right. So you, you're a guy of, of many different talents and interests. Uh, were you growing up, were you always interested in, in government and politics and in, in the military? I mean, there's so much that you've done as a, as a kid, as a, as a teenager, what, what were you interested in? So it's kind of funny in terms of a career, a lot of kids will grow up and say, Hey, I want to be, you know, one thing or another related to a profession. And I really didn't have, I think a clear idea of what I wanted to do. Other than uh, I liked excitement and just uh, you know running around like typical little boys, but I recall uh, joining the Explorers Post. It's basically it's sponsored through the Boy Scouts. They have them for both the police and fire departments, where you end up is basically on the fire department side, basically a junior member of the department if you haven't gone through the academy, but you can still kind of help out. So I um, I did that starting at age 13 in uh, in Mamaroneck in Westchester, and then. Uh, found myself down at the Trade Center in the days following the attacks afterwards. I was only about 16 at the time, had no no business being there, um, you know, but thought I needed to go and help. In retrospect, it's a bit embarrassing. But, um, you know, just in terms of the motivation for being there, it still shaped my my worldview and my experience. But uh, it's definitely out of my element, uh, but uh, I'll never forget it. And it was sort of served as a catalyst for um, my career in, in, uh, in government and the military afterwards. Mm, yeah, I can imagine. I mean, that was sure. uh, that was just... I still remember, you know, I'm sure you do too, where you were, you know, the feelings I was, you know, I was in, I had to be in middle school and I still mm. remember getting the news, the, you know, the PA system. Um, and where, where were you when you heard, what was your, you know, what was, what was going through your head? Sure. It was actually a very strange like uh, day. So I lived in New York city at the time. I was born and raised in Mamaroneck and we were living in Riverdale, uh, just North of Manhattan in that section of the Bronx. And I was commuting to White Plains in Westchester for high school, and I was still a member of the department in Mamaroneck just because that's where I had kind of grown up. And as a junior member, you're not responding to calls all the time. So it was the first day of a Catholic school teacher strike. Uh, so the uh, the buses that picked us up from the train station in White Plains wouldn't cross the picket line. And so I went to an 800-boy, all-male, obviously, Catholic high school in uh, in White Plains. And there were about four to five administrators and teachers who were in the building at the time who were not uh, part of the union that was on strike. And so when the attacks happened, a uh, vast majority of the students lived in either Yonkers or the Bronx, uh, just through the public schools there. And um, we we did have kids who lost, a, you know, lost parents. Uh, we lost our football coach. Um, and so you had to split the juniors and seniors in the auditorium, freshmen and sophomores in the gym. And uh, you know, basically the principal came in and said the country's under attack. And then they basically let us go because they had to send us back. I was couldn't go back to New York City. And so... Um, my, uh, my sister was in school in Manhattan. I made sure she was okay. And then after that, uh, my grandmother came and picked me up. I went down to the firehouse in Mamaroneck. And uh, so the village of Mamaroneck is the last all-volunteer department before you hit New York City. Uh, so it's the last all-volunteer before FDNY. And right after the attacks occurred, um, the you know, there was a massive response from the city fire department. So a lot of volunteer companies from Long Island were called in to help out in, I think, Queens and maybe parts of Brooklyn. 
and then Westchester County, uh, those departments were called in to cover uh, firehouses in the Bronx that had been called down to Manhattan to help out with the Trade Center. So half the department's apparatus were gone, including most of the uh, adult firefighters in the department. So for a good couple of days afterwards, we didn't go back to school because uh, it was closed and uh, we were essentially running fire calls from uh, from the firehouse. Um, and I can only imagine the looks on some of these folks' faces when uh, the firemen getting off were really juniors in the department that were ages mm. you know, 13 to 16. Uh, and that's that's kind of what we had. We were holding down the fort, so to speak. So it was wow. very, very mm. surreal experience. Yeah, that's that's unbelievable. Um, yeah. Crazy times, just, just yeah. still. Can't it's been almost twenty years, Matt. It's on. It's, it's, it's like it was yesterday. It is. It's, it's, it's unbelievable. Yeah. Um, twenty years. Wow. So, so yeah. you end, you end up going to college at American University, mm-hmm. and that's located in, in Washington D.C., where, where we met. Um, yep. feels also feels like, feels like a minute ago, but also now, now a long time ago as well. Um, what was that experience being, being in DC, being in Washington, being close to politics, close to government? What, what did that have? What impact did that have on you? Um, you know, I was trying to decide between business and politics, family school in New York was Fordham, but I lived in the city. They wouldn't give me housing. And I said, you know, I really like politics in general, having no concept of, uh, of what things really cost at that point. So I said, hey, let's go look at political science. And if you're going to do that, let's go to Washington, D.C. So I uh, ended up down in D.C. at American. And, uh, you know, I absolutely I enjoyed it. I mean, our time together down at, the, at school was fantastic. Um, and if you're going to study politics, Washington is certainly the uh, the place to be. Mm-hmm. That's for sure. Uh, the, the good, the bad and the ugly, right? <laughs> <laughs> Quite literally. Yes. Yes. So, I mean, one thing that that is, is just beyond, um, you know, admirable about you is the fact that in, in, in 2008, you voluntarily um, joined the military. You you went to Iraq, and this yeah. was obviously a decision that um, you made on your own. This is, clear, you know, obviously not something that, that you had to do. What, what, why did you, you know, what, why, why was that something that you felt you had to do? Why, why take the plunge? Why, you know, why go serve um, in the military? Sure. I think in my case, I remember um, I was in a political science class my spring of my freshman year, so it would have been the spring of 2004, just about a year after the invasion of Iraq. And we'd been in Afghanistan now for two years. And one of the other students, when we were having a debate about something, made a comment, something to the effect of, um, like, we deserved 9-11 based on foreign policy or something awful. I forget. It was something pretty close to that. So I got enraged, you know, being a typical 19-year-old kid, not in control of my emotions there. And I remember standing up and, you know, we're getting loud. Professor broke it up and the kid got the parting shot across the room and was basically, all right, tough guy, if you feel so strongly about it, why don't you sign up? And it kind of hit me in the chest and I was like, God, he's right. So Hmm. class ended, went back to the dorms, had a beer. Army commercial came on because that seemed like the smart thing to do. I picked up the phone and uh, the recruiter's like, let me get this straight. You haven't done any drugs. You haven't been arrested. You've graduated from high school, you have a scholarship to college, and you want to voluntarily enlist in Army Special Operations. I was like, yes. And I could just picture the wheels going through his mind. There's a sucker born every minute. He's like, I'll be right there. So he was at the, he was at campus within 30 minutes to come pick me up. I took the practice exams, and then uh, he picked me up that Saturday morning, three days later, after a fraternity party the night before. And I drove up to uh, to Baltimore with him and went to the uh, processing station and enlisted. Um, and you can only imagine having two parents who are, you know, very liberal physicians in uh, in Manhattan uh, at this mm-hmm. point, um, finding out that their uh, their son has decided that he is going to 
take a semester off from school to make sure they can finish all of his training to go into into the reserve component of the army um, and while well, there's two wars going on. So I'm pretty sure my mother called me every four letter expletive under the sun and I was not welcome <laughs> home for Easter. She was very upset, but uh, <laughs> she's since got over it. Oh my God. No, I, I can't even, yeah. I can't even imagine. It, t- it says everything about you and just the type of person you are, but I uh, had a yeah, you know, your family, your, you know, I, I couldn't even imagine what they were going through. Um, it, so you know, it must have been that, 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 that had to be some pretty, you know, pretty tough conversations, I'm sure. It was. But to me, I mean, I felt like, uh, you know, you hear a lot of comments about the makeup of the military, not necessarily reflective of society. There are a lot more folks who enter who are people of color or people who are of lesser means financially. And um, it just didn't sit right with me that we had two wars going on, particularly the one in Afghanistan as a result of what happened in New York. Um, I felt some sense of obligation, like I, I needed to, I need to serve. I couldn't leave this to somebody else to deal with. And, you know, looking back at your time in the military now, what, you know, what, what are your emotions? What are your feelings? What was it, you know, think about yourself back in 2008, was there, were you, was it surprising to you some of the things that happened? Was it, you know, could you have ever foreseen um, the challenges. I'm just kind of curious, you know, you're, you know, you're, like you said, you're drinking, you're drinking <laughs> beer in the dorms. Uh, could you have any foresight into what actually going to war would be like? Probably not. Uh, uh, Matt, I was so clueless. It was on a whim. It was an emotional based decision. Um, I remember going into the recruiting, you know, to the, the processing station, you have to choose your job once you get your scores for the exams. And I remember going through the computer with the, uh, the career counselor and he was trying to give me all kinds of nonsense. And I mean, I even chose my job, which started out as psychological operations, because I'd, I'd seen a movie not that long before that where something I alluded to it, and it came with a top secret clearance, which I thought was cool, even though I didn't really know what that meant. <laughs> so, I, I mean, I got into it for the right reasons, but with the wrong expectations and really not having any. Um, it, I, I don't think I was prepared, um, I want to say emotionally, I think, for, for combat and the things that happened. I traveled extensively at that point. I'd been to the Middle East previously. Um, so I, the the culture shock was not there for me that you'd see with a lot of other American soldiers. Uh, but I mean, obviously, combat is something that's not um, that's not a normal experience. I mean, I did see a you know a decent number, unfortunately, of uh, deceased bodies and you know, things of that nature down at the Trade Center and years in the, in the fire service. Um, but it was not something that you can really ever truly prepare yourself for mentally and kind of until it happens. And then uh, so I enlisted in 2004 while we were still in college, and then I ended up, I, I had an option to commission through the reserves in 2007 when we graduated, uh, and then um, basically was told our unit's leaving for the surge in Iraq, and I had a choice to either deploy with my unit or miss the deployment and, and go commission. And since I knew I wasn't going to go active duty, I, uh, I chose to go with my unit so I could go uh, go fight during the surge, um, which again, kind of shaped the rest of my life and experiences afterwards. Um, you know, very, a lot of survivor's guilt that still happens as a result mm. of that. Um, you know, why I made it back when other, other men that I would consider to be, um, you know, better men than I'll ever be, um, didn't make it home. So it doesn't, doesn't always make sense in that regard. Mm. Yeah. And I can, I can imagine that. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah, it's certainly, certainly not easy. Um, you know, you did, obviously you had, you had a, a distinguished career you 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 won the bronze star uh what, what was that experience like you know receiving the bronze star and you know the accolades that that came with it it was a little awkward to be honest with you when it happened so i mean i kind of feel like forrest gump in terms of like randomly stumbling through historical events that i found myself associated with in one way or another um <laughs> just kind of it's not your average experience for an enlisted guy especially one on the reserves yeah. um yeah but i went in 2008 so we had uh almost 
five weeks of block-to-block fighting in an area of downtown Baghdad called Sadr City. SEAL Team 3 sent a platoon in there with uh, someone that all of you will know is Chris Kyle, who's uh, Chief Kyle at the time. And uh, I think he ended up killing about 60 people in one day. I remember I was out on the uh, line of advance and we couldn't figure out where the shooting was coming from. Uh, and sure enough, it was uh, Chris Kyle as a Navy SEAL sniper who was taking out uh, enemy forces that were approaching us. So saw plenty of combat and got put in for an, an award for that. And then the uh, Bronze Star kind of came by accident. So after that, I went back to our headquarters um, and we had to create another detachment out of thin air, essentially, because the surge brought a lot of forces in the country. And so they sent our executive officer with some other soldiers down to another division to help support them. And I was brought back to the company headquarters to help support the commander since I had been to school and was a little older. Um, they asked if I would kind of fill in that role, which is, again, was rare for a sergeant to basically fill in an acting uh, executive officer uh, capacity. So um, I was the only NCO at the battalion staff meetings, which was always an interesting um, thing to find yourself in. But Part of what that included was spending 60 out of 90 days in a Black Hawk helicopter, basically, you know, shaking garbage bags full of wanted leaflets over terrorist households. So we ended up getting a lot of the Iranian uh, Quds Force officers and intelligence folks to flee Baghdad when they knew that we were after them. So mm. uh, it's kind of a combination of the fighting and then the uh, the airborne missions. Um, and for somebody who doesn't fly well, that's always fun. That's <laughs> kind of how it happened. So the uh, the award ceremony was held at division headquarters. It was a surprise. I had no idea it was going to happen. And the all the division staff were there, the commanding general. So. Uh, it was a little awkward. Uh, there were a lot of other guys who I thought were very deserving of awards, but the military is strange in that regard. You know, when you think you deserve something, you don't get it. And when you don't think you deserve something, you do get it. It's just right. nature of the game. And, uh, you know, the Marines are notoriously stingy with awards, the Army not so much. So it was definitely special as an enlisted guy. It's not something that happens uh, regularly, but uh, it was it was a humbling experience, I guess is the, the best way to put it. All right. Well, I know you're being... Uh... You know, you're 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 downplaying it, but uh, you 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 were very deser- deserving of it. Um, you know, it was an honor that that they don't they don't just give these to everyone and and anyone. And you know, you you certainly, you know, your your action, um, you know, in 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 Iraq, uh, in Afghanistan was was well deserving of it. So I know you know that. I know you're being uh, humble, but you know, you it's. Uh, it's the ultimate sacrifice what you did, and um, you know you're 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 one of few that actually ended up going through with it. A lot of people talk a big game, but but you you acted on um, on your on your de- desire to make the world a better place, and uh, you know and, and fight for what you believe in. So um, I appreciate you know, it, Matt. I mean, all, you don't have to thank me. You paid for it. it was your tax dollars? <laughs> that's true. That's true. <laughs> and 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 you're. I think you're missing the ping pong for Forrest Gump. I think you have everything else, but I don't know about your ping pong skills. They're, they're <laughs> lacking. Other than that, with Forrest Gump, I think you're pretty right. I think I think we're spot on. <laughs> so so after after um your your time in combat, you transitioned to the Pentagon, and you were a Pentagon official. Mm-hmm. I'm curious. Was that you know, before getting into what you were doing at the Pentagon, but was that challenging going from such a, going from combat, going from this ultra high stakes environment, not that the Pentagon's not high stakes, but, sure. you know, out there in the field to now being, you know, in an office behind a desk, was that, um, what was that adjustment like for you? I'd imagine it wasn't easy. Right. So for an enlisted guy, particularly as a non-commissioned officer, I mean, um, in the reserves, it's not I, the jobs I had afterwards, subsequently as a civilian, were not ones that I would have attained. I would have attained had I still been in uniform per se. So I did have a break in between before hitting the Pentagon. So I, I left Iraq. Obviously, I came back after that uh, that tour, and I went to go work for Northrop Grumman uh, and basically did staff augmentation within the Army Intelligence and Security Command headquarters, and eventually found my way over to uh, JIDO. So 
much like World War II, we had the Manhattan Project to develop nuclear, like the nuclear bomb, basically to help end the war. Um, roadside bombs were ended up being declared a weapon of strategic influence and were the number one killers of U.S. forces. So I ended up going back to Iraq in 2010 with that Special Activities Division, and there were about 36 of us, I would say. So it was a mix of Green Berets, SEALs, uh, human and counterintelligence professionals, and then some of us who did some black programming. And our job was basically to go after the bomb makers and their networks. So it, through that, I still got to see some action, but then also spent some some time having to staff those plans in the building. So, for example, General Austin is now the Secretary of Defense. He was the commander when I was there the second time after General Odierno left. So I got to spend some time with him. And it was upon returning from that tour because we had actually prevented a, a rocket attack against Vice President Biden through some mm. programming that I was running uh, at that time that I was able to get a couple accolades and that's how I got my next job, which is when I really arrived at the Pentagon. And uh, yeah, you're right. That's definitely an interesting experience to find one star generals getting coffee when they are a lesser God to many people in a foreign theater somewhere. Mm. Yeah. I can't, I can't even, I can't even imagine. Um, Very strange. Yeah. That, that, that's for sure. So, mm. so you, so you go from the Pentagon and you know, you spent some time now in in the private sector. Yep. What, um, you know, first of all, what 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 are you doing? What are you up to? I know I know that's been kind of a a, a whirlwind experience. You've been, mm-hmm. um, you know, you've been a busy guy out there, and and I'm curious also how that experience differs from working for the government in terms of you know the pros and cons. Sure. Um, you know how that how that compares to your time working for the government. Um, so before I came to the private sector, so I finished up and left the Pentagon in 2015, about almost six years ago in just a couple of months. So I was chief of sensitive activities within the office of the secretary, specifically for basically sensitive activities in special operations. So I had hostage rescue, counterweapons of mass destruction, some of our sensitive technical programs and some of our uh, information programs that were sort of my policy portfolio for oversight and policy development and that kind of thing. So um, you're right. It was very, very different. And I remember I, I woke up one day and I had a moment where I realized um, you know, I was a bureaucrat at that point. I wasn't doing anything in the field anymore, and I was staffing paperwork. And yes, it was you know it was great stuff. I was getting to look at and deal with very senior policymakers at the Pentagon, National Security Council, and I was on President Obama's hostage policy review team. I represented the Secretary of Defense for that. Um, but I realized one day I was I was a bureaucrat. I was shuffling papers in a building of thirty thousand people, which is like a small city. I mean, the Pentagon has its own post office, its own dental clinic, a CVS, Best Buy. I mean, you name it. Inside two Starbucks. So uh, I just I had a wake up call one day and I realized, you know, I'd done my part and that was kind of it. So I ended up leaving. As you mentioned, I went to finance for a little bit, spent some time at a hedge fund called Bridgewater, which, you know, is in Westport in Connecticut and then returned uh, to the aerospace and defense sector. um, And I ran operations for an aerospace defense company here in Connecticut. Um, And then since uh, I've taken over and built out the uh, aerospace and defense vertical for a management and IT consulting firm, and we specialize in the implementation of major IT hardware systems, excuse me, software systems, as well as uh, business consulting. So I get to travel across the country and see uh, how different divisions of major corporations uh, do business, help them you know, become more profitable and systematize some of the stuff that they've been doing, in many cases manually for you know better part of 20 years. So we get mm. there and we, we let them know that it shouldn't take six days to close their books, for example, uh, you know, for a finance month end close. So. It's been a very interesting transition. And then, uh, you know, I squeezed in graduate school in between at Johns Hopkins at some point Oof. between the combat tours. So it's been uh, it's been a long 10 years. I'll tell you that There's much. Not much sleep. <laughs> no, it's overrated. And and two young daughters. I don't, it, the more Identical th- twin girls. That's payback. And I'm pretty sure it's from my undergraduate <laughs> years and I deserve every moment of it. 
You're ma- you're making me tired just uh, speaking, thinking about all this at the same time. My God. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, and then getting involved with politics on the side too. So just add that on top of it. Right. Well, you're 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 basically uh, a machine. I, I don't. You know, you're you're like Robo Man at this point. Um, too much. <laughs> so speaking of politics, you mm-hmm. you've uh, you've gotten involved in uh, in Fairfield local politics, Fairfield, yep. Connecticut. Um, which is where you reside now. Mm-hmm. What exactly? How how did you get involved in 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 the politics? And um, you know what what have you been you know what have you been up to um, as you know as part of the Republican Town Committee? So I I didn't get involved immediately when I joined here. So I'm trying to think of the best way to put this. Um, I uh, I was thinking I may actually go back to Washington after first coming up here, realizing that finance was not going to be my thing. I just didn't really enjoy it. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, by historical precedent, when you end up with eight years of a president of one party in office, typically, the, you know, it changes hands to the other party. And after President Obama had been there for eight years, thought maybe the prospects of Republicans say along the lines of like Jeb Bush was going to get elected. Um, lo and behold, I was wrong, as was most of the country. And, and you know, Donald Trump ended up getting elected. Um, and so. Just about that time when I realized I was not going to come back to D.C. Um, after I I'd had some discussions with General Flynn very early, probably th- I think it was like three days after he had been named National Security Advisor des- designee. We had traded some emails about joining the transition team, uh, spoke to some friends at the bureau. I had worked with the counterterrorism and made a decision I was not going to go, um, not going to go back to D.C. And so I realized if I wasn't going to go back to Washington in a political capacity that I wanted to do something, you know, to help and kind of give back. And so I just showed up cold to a uh, town committee meeting here in Fairfield one night and said, hey, I'm here. And they all kind of looked at me cross-eyed and said, who's moving to Connecticut from D.C.? And I said, well, I guess I am. <laughs> and uh, a couple of years later, I found myself as party chairman. So I've run uh, a couple of successful races for state senate, state house, uh, the first select woman's race here, which is the equivalent of a mayor for folks who don't have uh, that type of system of government in their town in terms of what that means. Um, and then subsequently, I've become the you know, fire commissioner here in Fairfield, as well as uh a justice of the peace. So I've been uh, a little busy. I call it hashtag uh, weddings and warrants. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I like that. I like and, that. Vice, and vice commander of the American Legion, too, I guess, which, uh, you know, there's about six guys in there. I mean, if you remember when we were kids at those parades, right. you know, there'd be, uh, you know, 60, 60 some odd men between the age of 60 and 80 marching the parade. And unfortunately, there's only about six to 10 of us that are active. So it's kind of almost like rotating positions in the chairs. It's uh, not quite what it used to be. Fairfield hit the jackpot with you, man, because they they would they would need like twelve people to fill all your your jobs. I mean, every seems like you're you're like you're doing just about a little bit of everything for you know for the town Republican uh, you know committee. For better or worse, yes. Um, you know, I think there's some people who would not be happy, or who are happy, and others who are not. So I mean, <laughs> it's, right. you kind of take it as it goes. I mean, it's been it's been a blessing in disguise. I mean, I had uh, I also had a certificate in emergency management from FEMA that I had to get right right after college before deploying to Iraq for a job I was working at the time as a reservist. And uh, so when COVID hit, uh, the first black woman had uh, asked if I would come in and help out because at one point they were they think they were saying it was going to be like between sixty percent of. 40 or 60, I think it was 60% of first responders were, you know, were estimated to potentially go down with COVID. And so uh, having somebody who's qualified as a, you know, as a fireman and uh, years of emergency planning you know, between the Pentagon and DHS in my time in DC. Uh, so just added an extra pair of hands. Now, thank God that scenario didn't unfold, but it was, uh, uh, it felt, it felt good to be able to kind of contribute in a meaningful way again, after having left, uh, you know, DC and, and that, and I mean, I think your original question was, you know, how different is it? 
Um, you know, I spent the hour before my kid's baptism uh, in the uh, in the tank, the uh, most secure room at the Pentagon, basically watching a hostage rescue raid go down live in Yemen <laughs> and then uh, on, a, on drone footage and then hopped in an Uber and went to St. Matthew's Cathedral in D.C. So um, things are things are very different. Um, you know, I'm happy this the area I grew up in. I grew up about 10 towns south of here on the water in Mamaroneck in New York. And uh Happy raising kids here. I do miss the work. I miss the uh, the excitement. Uh, you know, the, the fulfilling nature of, of working on some of those sensitive issues, particularly you know chasing bad guys, uh, you know, around the world and that kind of thing. But uh, and I like to joke, just a chubby suburban dad, right? Saving the world one email at a time. I mean, it's, I mean, you really have you've lived such interesting, so many lives in in one life. Um, you know, the the different facets of your life are are fascinating. Are you know just just incredible. Something else that you've done kind of in the political realm uh, beyond beyond the local politics in Fairfield is you've you've been a contributor for Politico. You've written for Federal, Federal, the Federalist. You've yeah, the uh, Hartford Current, uh, the Daily Caller. I've contributed yeah, to a few publications. Yeah, you've been a prolific writer. I know you're 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 big on you know social media. You've certainly um, you know you have a great following there. You've been you've been featured on Fox News. What what um. You know, what are these experiences like for you, being able to get your voice out there, being able, you know, being able to get heard? Uh, you know, what 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 um, what do you get out of the experience of kind of putting your 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 thoughts out to the world? Well, in some cases, I find it almost therapeutic, particularly when I'm writing on national security related topics um, that uh, are of importance to me uh, or things that have that have transpired. And uh I know they always tell people, like, if you're really emotional, angry, you know, write an email, but don't send it, you know, walk away from your computer, come back a few hours later and read it. If you're still right. good with it, then send it. Um, and it's because when you get that initial kind of burst out, you get it's this um, I call it a scholastic vomit on paper. Basically, everything in your brain on that topic goes on paper and you get it out. And there's almost this emotional rush that comes with it. Like you just you made your point. Um, and in many cases for me, for especially for you know stuff related to Iraq or Afghanistan, it was um it was helpful, as well as I did do some writing on uh, Ukraine as well, because uh, while I was I was there during the revolution, basically while the uh, the Maidan, as they call it, the square, was on fire, and the president had just fled the country. So I had uh, I had the unique um, experience of uh, of kind of witnessing the roll up of events that led to Russian uh, attempts to interfere in the 2016 election. So, I mean, if that's something you want to talk about, I'm happy to dive into it. Yeah, no, I am interested. I'd like to hear more about that. Yeah, so these from my personal perspective, right? So the Russians have never been happy or with the prospect of a NATO country uh, appearing on their borders, the former satellite states. And so Ukraine cozying up to NATO has always been a very sensitive topic for the Russians that they don't appreciate. Uh, the Russian Black Fleet, which is based in Sevastopol and Crimea, which the Russians ended up annexing uh, when they invaded Ukraine, uh, is basically their their warm weather port that they would use to access the Mediterranean, um, you know, through uh, through uh, through Istanbul there through the Strait. And then they would be able to counter NATO in the Mediterranean and the Atlantic. Um, the prospect of losing access to Sevastopol uh, was a problem. But more importantly, when I was there, I met with some Ukrainian officials. And what I was told is that the summer before the Russians had met with some Ukrainian officials, particularly in the security and intelligence realm, and communicated a few messages. At the time, Ukraine was considering signing on to, a, um, to an economic treaty with the European Union that would have included the adoption of NATO military policy, which was a step too far for the Russians. And the Ukrainians were warned by the Russians, basically, don't do this. The Ukrainians politely told them to pound sand. And then their president uh, backed off when the Russians made threats. Russians cut off gas in the winter. I mean, it got bad. Mm. And um, 
long story short, normally when you get into war, you have your maneuver elements, your infantrymen, your tanks, everything else that lead the battle, right? And your folks that, that we call leaf eaters, folks like me who do influence operations or deception or that kind of thing are usually supporting elements for that for that maneuver force that's going in to conduct military operations. We saw a fundamental shift in operations in Ukraine. So if you recall um, at that time, the Rus- so there's a Russian diaspora in Ukraine. 50% of the country is uh, Russian-speaking, Russian Orthodox, and it's the eastern half of the country. It's literally split down the middle by a river, right? And then on the western side of the country, part of which used to be part of Poland, they speak Ukrainian. They're either Ukrainian Catholic or Ukrainian Orthodox. So there's an ethnic and religious divide in the country and a linguistic divide as well. So the Russians started playing uh, videotapes on their 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 home news services, basically making it look like they were fascists running around, you know, going after you know ethnic Russians there as a pretext for an invasion. So when I was there, though, I was in I was in Kiev, and then I was in Lviv or Lviv as it was pronounced uh, on the border with Poland on the on the far west side, which was supposed to be the center of the resistance. There was nobody there. There were there were tourists milling about, you know, shopping. The whole thing was was nonsensical. So the Russians basically built up the pretext for war under through using propaganda. And then they sent in their forces without patches on or identifying marks as Russian soldiers. And then Putin played dumb in the press. So by the time the invasion happened, the war had pretty much been fought in the information space and the troops just came in to occupy. Wow. Um, and we'd never seen anything like it. And uh, I mean, if you look at what happened, the, the administration was caught flat footed. There were debates in the Pentagon about whether or not we could even send them medical kits, never mind anything else. And the Russians realized that if you know their forces aren't technically there in their opinion, even though you know we, they were tagged on social media, Russian soldiers died. Um, you know they, their their vehicles still have Russian military license plates. Never mind shooting down the uh, you know the the civilian aircraft that that was shot down over Ukraine. Mm. Um, it, it became they they realized that they could they can have strategic effects using you know just information and not spend a lot of money on it. So I, I was there for that, and then I was there when the the Georgians basically the 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 Georgian war with the Russians, 2,000 of them were on the runway when I arrived back in Baghdad after leave, and mm-hmm. all the transport planes were flying them back to Georgia to fight the Russians. And again, this had a lot to do with Saakashvili and his coziness with the West and potentially joining NATO. And then uh, what happened in South Ossetia and Abkhazia with uh, Ukrainian and Russian force, or excuse me, Georgian and Russian forces. Again, it was that sensitivity to NATO. Now, once the Russians realized that they could be successful with their information operations in Ukraine, um, I believe that they, I don't believe that they actually thought Donald Trump was going to win. Uh, the only people who had the polling correct was basically the RNC. Everybody else had Trump losing you know, by a lot. So I think they thought that Hillary was going to win. They wanted to weaken her. And so they went after her, as we saw with the wiki, you know, with the hacking of the DNC emails and everything else. Right. And they spent very little, maybe tens of thousands of dollars on social media ads on Facebook. And Donald Trump was elected. There's there's no evidence to indicate that their operations actually helped contribute to his election. But their real goal, which was announced, was sowing societal discord in the U.S., which they were 100 percent successful at. Um, and then it just got worse. So if we look at what happened in 2020, um, you know, the Chinese were actively intervening, trying to ensure Biden was elected because their goal was stability. They didn't like Trump being an unpredictable actor related to Taiwan or North Korea. Whereas the Russians were loving the unpredictability because to them it meant more chaos inside the United States, which they found to be to their advantage. So, I mean, the Georgian war was back in 2008, I want to say. Mm-hmm. So I could pretty much trace the lineage of the events going back from 2008 until uh, the 2016 election. So there was an eight year buildup of geopolitics and, and Russian, the, the changes in Russian military operations and tactics that led to essentially the 2016 
election and then four years of utter and complete turmoil, which is exactly what they wanted. It's amazing how you can literally trace it back to, to 2008. I mean, yeah. is there, are, are we doing, are we taking the steps now to, to make sure that it doesn't happen again? I, I, it doesn't no. seem like we're really doing enough. It's so it's difficult as, as a former practitioner in the space, as a you know psychological operations specialist, someone who did deception work. Um, what I can tell you is that it's against U.S. law for for the federal government or for particularly the Department of Defense to engage in any type of operations, influence operations of sorts that that could be seen by a U.S. target audience because you can't be influencing the civilian populace. So that takes them out of the game. You have you know State Department, CIA, and DoD playing overseas, right? Uh, with the State Department being the president's primary representative in country through the ambassador. But domestically, you've got DHS and then you've got the FBI. So you've got a couple of different problems here, right? So we have the cybersecurity issues that we've seen that have, the, you know, obviously that have been exploited for that matter, the, the vulnerabilities. And we've seen a lot of ransomware attacks where they go in and they'll seize data and they'll encrypt it and they won't release it without a payment in Bitcoin. And, and we've had seen some major hacks come up recently in the last couple of weeks. Um, during Biden's last meeting with Putin, he told them, you know, hey, we need to we need to agree on some uh, you know critical infrastructure here that are going to be off limits for cyber operations because you know it, you can't do that. So while the intent was understood, it also kind of telegraphed what we're worried about, which, in retrospect, I don't think was probably the greatest idea. But um, the Russians responded by basically saying pound sand, and they're going to conduct mm -hmm. some cyber operations, and so did the Chinese for that matter as well. Um, so that's one piece of it, and then the second side of it is the foreign influence, and that's actually the more difficult one to deal with. So in a society that values free speech with through a First Amendment with limited uh, exceptions, you know, like yelling fire in a crowded theater, the famous you know, Supreme Court case and everything else, right. um, what is the source of truth? So you have people from overseas who are logging onto accounts. Who gets to censor them? What happens if we make a mistake and it's an American citizen and in a hyper-partisan environment? Um, you know, what's the who's right and what's truth and how do you do you block people are you suppressing people's first amendment rights as long as they're not you know claiming violence there this is a legal and constitutional nightmare to try to navigate and mm -hmm. we also don't have a u.s information agency anymore to kind of deal with uh, a lot of the propaganda effects that we've had so for counter propaganda which you learn in the military uh basically if they're if it's not having an effect then you don't highlight it because all you're going to do is is give credence or add fuel to the fire for whatever your adversary is trying to do in this case, it had an effect. It's sowing societal discord. So then it becomes a question of how do you stop it? And if you can't defend against it, right, uh, you know, because it's very complicated and a legal mess, which is why, again, I think the administration is trying to lean so heavily on the social media companies because they're not a government entity and they can kind of do what they want as a private business to a large extent, right? Uh, mm. Section 230 of the, uh, of the act notwithstanding that protects them as a publisher and not an editor so they can't really get sued because um, it's easier for them to kind of do stuff about it. I think we have to make it painful enough for the Russians and the Chinese and whoever else that the consequences will be so great that we'll be able to establish deterrence. Mm -hmm. And so that's the real problem is we haven't figured out how to establish deterrence in cyberspace, either for their influence operations or or for cyber hacking to the extent that the Russians or the Chinese or the North Koreans or the Iranians will say, hey, the juice isn't worth the squeeze for us to do right. this. And until we do, they're they're just going to keep doing it. Yeah, seem, seems like, I mean, if they're... If 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 you're not penalizing them to the point where they're not incentivized to do it anymore, why? If you look at it from their point of view, if they're you know just getting a slap on the wrist or whatever it is, if that, uh, why stop? You know they're they're getting they're getting the results they want, right? 
Right. And part of the, the national security decision making process that you know, we go through for our president, I've been a member of the, some of the National Security Council bodies when, when things are staffed up to the president, as well as what our adversaries kind of go through. Um, one of the things that we take a look at is what's called the most dangerous and most likely course of actions. And sometimes they're one and the same, but they're usually different uh, that your adversary will take in response to whatever it is that you're considering. So um, I think President Obama achieved a lot for this domestic policy portfolio he was in. I mean, he's beloved by a lot of folks on the progressive side and on the left for you know, uh, Obamacare and so many other things, you know, doing away with don't ask, don't tell in the military, a lot, a lot of stuff. Uh, the foreign policy community, by and large, will not give the administration great marks just in general on both sides of the aisle. It's not something they've done particularly well with. Uh, so whether it was the Syrian red line that wasn't backed up, um, the decision to withdraw from Iraq, when, you know, basically I was in Iraq in 2010 again at the headquarters. We said, you, you guys do this and you're going to have a problem. Al Qaeda is not done. ISIS formed in the vacuum. Uh, North Korean hacking of Sony pictures. I mean, you, you name it, you know, the decision not to go into Syria, even after we said we would if they use chemical weapons. What that telegraphs to our adversaries, right, is they look at our responses to these events and stimulus, right, the invasion of Ukraine, we didn't do anything about that either, really. And they said, okay, if I do X, what are the Americans likely to do in response? And their, their people came back and said, hey, if you do this, they're really not going to do much, or they're going to do X with an awaited decision, say, okay, whatever that is that they think they're going to do in response is worth whatever we're going to gain by doing what we want to do. And if you watch the North Koreans, the Russians, the Chinese, like even the Iranian nuclear deal, right? it was pretty clear to everybody who was watching that the administration was trying to do anything they could to avoid a war, which is an admirable goal. It's not a criticism. Right. But they let the Iranians keep the technology and raw uranium that go through the enrichment process to get to a nuclear weapon. That's why we're in the situation we're in now. It kicked the can down the road for 10 mm -hmm. years. So what it said to the, all those adversaries is there's not going to be a strong response from the Americans. And so they keep pushing the envelope to figure out how far they can take it before we actually respond. And unfortunately, from what I've seen over the last six months, I believe that's exactly what the Russians, the Chinese and the North Koreans and the Iranians are doing right now to see how much freedom of room they're going to have to operate before they, they generate a, a significant response or threat of a response to reestablish deterrence. And that's really what we need to get back to is, you know, we're adversaries. We don't share the same policy outcomes or policy related goals in many cases. So people are always about. You know, how do we work better with the Iranians and they want to stick their hand out and especially progressive foreign policy establishment says, you know, it's, it's your approach. That's the problem with the Chinese. Remember the famous Russian reset with the button with Hillary. Right. When we fundamentally disagree on elements of policy, it's it's more than just the approach. So it's about containment at that point. And containment to me doesn't mean the, the deployment of military forces, but it's really through the establishment of deterrence. And that's from a national security perspective, I think our most important thing that we're going to have to work on over the next couple of years. And and from a, you know, certainly have issues uh, internationally, as, as you just yeah. described, but we certainly have issues domestically, too. Yes, um, very much so. You know, between between even just between ourselves, uh, between the Democrats and Republicans. It's, really sad. Yeah, I mean, it always, you know, I think you, you expect a certain level of, you know, discord and 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 dis and, uh, you know, disagreement. There's always, you know, Republicans and Democrats are never going to, you know, sing kumbaya, I don't think. But at the same time, sure. it seems just, you know, I can't remember a time ever being as, as broken to the point where literally stuff that things that should be uh, common sense measures are, are not even getting close to you know being you know uh, passed at, at at this time, yeah. You know where are we today, and how do we get to a place where you know the government 
is operating for the people, you know, by the people, uh, to the place that we, you know, all want it to be, all hope that it can be. Sure. So I think if you, the root cause of this goes back a lot further. I won't give you a long-winded diatribe for a change, but uh, if you look at the congressional districts across the country, right, 435 members of Congress, um, and you look at something called gerrymandering, if you look at the districts, you know, they look like obscure abstract art pieces as opposed to like, uh, you know, a logical grouping of people because we have one member of Congress for every 750,000 people or something like that, whatever it is. Um, and then there's a fixed number of representatives. So if you divide the, the populace after a census, which is called for in the Constitution, every 10 years we do a census and then apportion our representatives, the states have to redraw the lines for the congressional districts to make sure that it includes the requisite number of people to make sure that everyone's adequately represented. And that's usually done either by a commission appointed by a governor or by a state legislator, uh, legislature. And unfortunately, what we've seen over the last 20 years is after the last couple of census, we've seen maybe 30 years for that matter, we have seen some really significant gerrymandering. And so why that's important, uh, you know, never mind the 24-hour cable news cycle, we'll leave that to the side for a minute, mm. is that, you know, the congressional districts used to be more evenly drawn, you know, 55, 45, you couldn't be a far left or far right psycho and get elected. It just wouldn't happen. You wouldn't make it through a general election. But now when these, you know, these races are so, you know, they're, they're gerrymandered, or in some cases where they're not, like AOC's district, for example, in Queens, and, you know, um, Nancy Pelosi made the joke that, uh, you know, a cup of water or a refrigerator, you know, with a with a Democrat next to it would get elected in that district because it's 70 percent D. What you end up having in those particular districts and they're on the Republican side, too. I wasn't trying to take a swipe there. It's sure. more the primary becomes the 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 real election. So if you make it through the primary, you're going to coast through the general because 70 percent of the people in your party. Right. Unfortunately, only 10 percent of the people usually turn out in primary elections. And it's the hardcore left or hardcore right base members that usually come out and vote. So it's been pushing members of Congress further to the left and further to the right in order to get through that primary and make sure that they don't get a challenge and they get elected. So what you end up with is even further polarization and partisanship in Congress that then transcends over to the White House and everywhere else in Washington, which has essentially brought D.C. to a halt. It's like it's, it's gridlocked. Nothing's getting done. Yeah, yeah, it's no, it's it's it's, you know, you look at like something like infrastructure, which is, you know, you <laughs> every bridge in this in this country is broken. Every you right. know, you look at, at the potholes and the highway. I mean, just every, you know, the, the airports, uh, if, if there's one thing that we need, it's infrastructure. It's just an example of how, you know, there, there shouldn't be that, that shouldn't be difficult to get done. I understand that there's you know, maybe we don't agree on the amount of money and, and the budget. But that just seems like one that, you know, we can all kind of uh, get around and say, hey, you know, look at, you know, look at our country. That's, you know, many of these infrastructure projects were last completed in the 50s or 60s. Uh, it just kind of shows how how broken things are right now. Yeah, it does. And I think so you take that combination of factors related to the gerrymandering and the 24 hour news cycle and then you throw in social media and blogs. And because right. let's face it, 20 years ago. There weren't, you know, 25 years ago, whatever, there really weren't blogs around or, or, you know, makeshift journalists. It was there were newspapers, there were television programs, there were radio shows and they were all sort of mainstream, so to speak. I don't even mean like fairness doctrine, that kind of stuff. But I'm not I'm not going there. Saying, but those were the primary means through which, you know, we received information. And now through the net, I mean, anybody can stand up a website and produce their own you know, material and call themselves mm -hmm. a journalist and this or that. And then you've got foreign adversaries who are pushing propaganda, um, and that combination is a problem. Um, I also firmly believe that the news media, uh, uh, their behavior over the last 
six years has been absolutely atrocious. Hmm. Um, and and I, I'm not just making a generalization, so I'll explain myself, right? So I think if you look at, you know, many of the anchors on CNN, take Don Lemon, for example, he has been no, uh, you know, he really has not pulled back on his, his uh, lack of love for Donald Trump, which is fine. It's his entitled right. But we've gotten more into the commentary side as opposed to straight news delivery, right? The problem is when you when those those folks who are responsible for delivering the news and the facts without editorializing begin to editorialize and inserting opinion, and then never mind, uh, you know, some of the demonization that took place. I remember, I remember when the Tea Party started, you know, Anderson Cooper had apologized because he called the Tea Partiers tea baggers, which is obviously, you know, a sexual term. Right. Um, what it I did is it, it turned off a lot of the folks who were conservative and said, hey, I can't get unbiased news because people hate Donald Trump. Now, don't forget, these are the same people who gave Donald Trump endless airplay. Uh, he spent next to nothing on media when most presidential candidates will spend north of a half a million, half a billion dollars on right. media buys. But he got all the free airtime because it was good. Uh, you know, it was it was good for ratings and nobody actually thought he was going to win. And essentially, when I look at it from the media perspective, they created a monster in that regard. Um, you know, and then Twitter didn't turn off Trump's account until the, you know, the, the, the week of January 6th after four years of profiting off of him, you know, pushing the platform. So it really pushed a lot of folks and particularly folks in areas of the country where, you know, they they're they're not you know getting the mainstream news coming in to what we call alternative news sources. That then opens the door for foreign adversaries to start running their own news programming or fake sites or whatever else and infusing the information space with um with propaganda that uh, that you know pits Americans against one another, so I think there's there's been a, a series of factors that has led to this that have just it's just been detrimental to society at, at large, you know, for our country. So speaking of January sixth, you were you were really one of the few Republicans in in the state of Connecticut that that spoke out against it. Uh, you yeah. you you were very adamant, uh, very yes. direct and clear that. That this was um, a disgrace. That this was, you know, should have never happened, and you know the reasons for why it happened. Why, why was that something that you felt you had to be so public about? Um, you know, your your thoughts and feelings about January sixth. So, I mean, I as somebody who's involved as a as a party official, right, and seeing how elections are run here, you have voter databases and everything else to try to get millions of people, you know, fake votes and dead people. It sounds great for memes online, everything else. It's just not realistic, right? Like you're not having millions of dead voters who are voting that are throwing the election. And I think where a lot of folks are confused, right? And they're saying, well, you know, how did Joe Biden get more votes than Obama did? Because he's a befuddled old man. He wasn't even loved like Obama was. Nobody really loved him in the primary, which is why he had 25 challengers. I think they underestimate how much people hated Donald Trump. And mm. It was the same thing in 2016. It wasn't that everybody loved Donald Trump, it's that they hated Hillary in many cases. And that's the same right. thing that kind of happened in 2020 based on the behavior. So a lot of folks saw that as an impossibility, right? Um, and they were sort of challenging it. For me, why I found it problematic, um, not only the challenging for uh, what was kind of taking place without evidence is there's a, if you look at our, our money, right? So our dollars were off the gold standard. It's based on the full faith and credit of the United States government, right? And that's where the, the value of a dollar will come from in that regard. And they know that they can back it up. It's kind of the same thing with our country writ large and our democratic institutions. If people don't have faith in them anymore, the government collapses and we end up in chaos, right? Which is kind of where we're at at the moment. So why this is so problematic as far as I'm concerned is there was a disruption. Granted, it was only, it was a couple hundred people. I think they were there. There were tens of thousands on the mall that were not involved in what took place at the Capitol. But for those few morons who did decide that they were gonna go storm the US Capitol, um, you know, that was a peaceful transition of power where they were voting to seat the next president of the United States, right? And everything that was going on in Congress. And 
even if people thought there was a challenge, which some members of Congress are trying to do, that's the opportunity for them to, to vent and, you know, whatever they think that there's a, you know, a problem or their, their, their issue, their protest, and then it gets heard in a joint session of Congress and then they continue to vote. That entire process was disrupted. That mm-hmm. has never happened before. Um, I saw it as an assault on our democracy, our democratic institutions. Um, and I, I fundamentally disagree with the belief that the election was stolen. It was not. Uh, Joe Biden is the democratically elected, duly elected president of the United States, my commander in chief. Uh, and while I disagree with him on policy on many items, um, He's my president. And I found, you know, the not my president routine with Trump or with Bush or with now with, um, you know, with Biden, I find all of that to be un-American, quite frankly, um, and sore losers and, uh, you know, work harder next time. And it just it, it is what it is. And I know people are very upset when they hear me say that, but that's my personal beliefs. And, uh, you know, I'm not going to compromise that uh, as a result. One, one thing about you, which is which is. Um, again, which which I admire is that you've you've never been afraid to to tell it like it is. There's no fluff. There's no, um, you know, and and that's that's very few and far in between for for the way politics is today. There's yeah. you know, everyone's kind of looking out for their own interests, for you know how they're going to get reelected, how they're going to get elected. But with you, uh, you know, you're you're certainly a straight shooter. You know, it, as we you know as we close here. Uh, what is, what's the state of the Republican party right now? I mean, it's been, it's been about, you know, six months since, since Trump left office, but at the same time, he's still seems like he has a grip on the party and this divorce doesn't seem to, you know, be, be going so smoothly because you have a lot of Republicans that just won't, um, won't move on. And he for himself won't move on. Where, where does the Republican party go from here? How do you... Um, sure. You know, how do you fi- fix this situation where Trump is not currently in office, but feels like he should be and may be back? I, what What do you where do we stand? So um, when I try to talk to people about this, right, I look at um, I look at Trump. The guy's almost 80 years old. So from a biological perspective, there's no way he's the future of the party. He's not going to be around that long. Um, is his America first message uh, and elements of that policy going to be around for a long time? Absolutely. That's not going anywhere. And I think we saw a fundamental shift in the, in the membership of both parties, to be to, you know, for example. A lot of public safety guys, police, fire, everyone else who are traditional union blue voters have, have come full fold in the Republican Party. And I don't think they're going back Democrat anytime soon. We did see a pickup of a lot of uh, uh, a lot of working class voters that we hadn't uh, that we hadn't seen before. And at the same time, the Republican Party lost a lot of, you know, suburban women and others that had been in the party for a long time and a lot of folks that were more moderate. And so I think, you know, basically going forward, the Republican Party is going to try to figure out how do we retain those uh, those members of the party that have now that are new? How do we try to claw back some of the ones that have left? And I believe the Democrats are going to do the same thing. Um, so he, his hold on the party will not be personal for all that long, but uh, I, I do believe that the policies that he instituted, a lot of the America First stuff, and quite frankly, I don't think all the policies he instituted were terrible. Uh, you know, there are some folks who will vehemently disagree with that, and there are things that he did that I didn't like, just like with every other president, uh, you know, his behavior notwithstanding. Um, but it's going gonna, it's gonna to shape, shape things for quite some time. So what's next for you, Alex? You know, you, you've lived this life of... <sighs> Uh, you know, so many lives in in one life, and and you're still a young man. Uh, any 
aspirations for politics on on a national level any um you know stay in the private sector what I, you know i know it's hard to predict the future but you know where where do you see your career headed uh, is it you know is it is it uh maybe towards getting back into dc politics um it's possible i think uh, more probable than anything else um that I, I probably would come back maybe in a policy related capacity as an appointee. Um, I've got a very famous, uh, I got a very, there's a very famous phrase in DC that the uh, the most important people in Washington are sent there by somebody else. They don't come there with their own volition. So I, I don't think I'll be the one running for, for Congress in that regard, but uh, working for another administration in a capacity at the Pentagon or in the intelligence community at the State Department, I think is probably, that. That's that's my pipe dream. In the meantime, loving the private sector and love it here in Connecticut. Great. And if people, you know, I'm sure everyone who listened really enjoyed this interview and, and, you know, you're such a fascinating guy with, with so much going on, very opinionated, but opinions that, that you can back up that are based in fact, and not, you know, like, like, unlike so much of, we see almost like, unlike so much of what we see out there right now, just, you know, um, just complete nonsense. You, 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 you share opinions, but they're they're based in in reality. If people want to follow you on social media, if they want to read no, no. your articles, uh, where you know where can they go to do that? So mainly on Twitter. So it's uh, at uh, Alex Pletsis uh, is my my Twitter handle. It's where I do most of my politics. I try to keep the rest of that off of the rest of social media that drives everyone crazy. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're you're Very you're good, Matt. Thank you're, you so much for having me on, man. I really appreciate it. I appreciate it too. Thanks. Thanks for making the time and, um, and best of luck with, uh, with juggling these 37 things you juggle. Appreciate it. You got it. it. (laughs) Thanks, Matt. Thank you for listening to this episode of Deep Dives with our guest, Alex Pletos. Deep Dives can be found on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. We'll be back next week with an all new episode of Deep Dives.